two of our G20 episode is a conversation with a number of representatives from civil society with their ideas on how the structure and functioning of the G20 could be improved from its current state. In the lead-up to the G20 summit in Toronto in June 2010, hundreds of international civil society organizations signed onto a statement that called for a global leaders' forum that promotes democratic global governance and sustainable economic recovery. Here is Gauri Srinivasan of the Canadian Coalition for International Cooperation. Following the Pittsburgh announcement of the emergence of the new G20 Leaders Forum, civil society groups acting on their concerns that the G20 needed to be held to a high standard for democratic governments worked on a core statement called Key Principles for a More Democratic Leaders Forum. The five core concerns and benchmarks that civil society laid out were, one, to be inclusive of the poorest countries, starting with the African Union but going beyond. Secondly, that the G20 be representative in composition, meaning while needing to be limited in size, it needs to have a process to select who's at the table, not be handpicked by themselves. Third principle was being transparent and accountable. Fourth principle was that the G20 must strengthen the role of the UN, not undermine it. And the fifth core principle is that the G20's leaders forum must be open to civil society. Voice is really important because who is around the table radically affects the kinds of decisions that are taken. Not just what solutions are brought forward, but what problems are placed on the table to influence the agenda. Small countries, least developed countries, their economies are very radically different from the economies of even middle-income and more advanced developing countries, highly dependent on a few commodity exports, very dependent on finance and aid, and have different kinds of bottlenecks that need to be addressed. They have different issues that they would place on the table than countries with much more diverse economies. The African Union was invited to attend the G20 summit in Korea in November 2010, a step that civil society groups applaud but note is just one small step of many. Principle four in the civil society statement calls for strengthening the role of the United Nations. Andrew Cooper of the Center for International Governance Innovation discusses ongoing tensions between the UN and the G20. There are a number of power struggles going on. I mean, one was this sort of original power struggle where when the crisis hit, I guess there were a number of alternatives about which sort of institutional home would be seen as the solution institution for the crisis. And of course, the UN was a, a distinct possibility. The Secretary General wanted to have the equivalent of the G20 sort of housed or home through the United Nations. Quite clearly, I think George W. Bush didn't want the UN to be involved and sort of took the G20 finance idea off the shelf and said, you know, we'll do it sort of nationally as the host will invite other organizations to sit around the table, but the clear privileging will be on the sort of 19 countries, plus the EU, plus sort of surrounding sort of outliers, but the real focus will be at the national level. And of course, this left the UN in a dilemma. We can see that there was an attempt for the UN to sort of pick up its game, to have the General Assembly, a special summit, a conference on the economic crisis, the Stiglitz Committee. But at the same time, I think there's a split also between the countries of the Global South and indeed sort of what alternatives the non-members of the G20 would pose. In fact, 23 countries that are not part of the G20 
have come together within the United Nations, calling themselves the Global Governance Group, or 3G. Here is Roy Culpepper of the UN Conference on Trade and Development. I think it's important to have the UN as a player, an important player in the system. There has been the creation of this 3G group, Global Governance Group, comprising mostly smaller countries, a bunch of Caribbean countries, for example, Singapore, but also countries like Switzerland and Chile. I believe there's about 24 such countries in the Global Governance Group. And it's important to understand that uh, when this group was formed last year in 2010, they weren't trying to overturn the G20. They recognized the G20 was here to stay, at least for a while, and make it more accountable, accountable to the larger international universal body politic through the UN. And that's basically what the Global Governance Group is trying to do. And they pulled in the Secretary General Basically, where this enterprise is going is to try and make the G20 involve, through consultations and other kinds of mechanisms, the smaller and poorer and excluded countries, the ones that are not currently members of the G20, so that their concerns and issues are on the table and, to the extent possible, taken into account. Principle 5 in the statement asks that the G20 be open to civil society. Here is Sarah Anderson from the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. I think we're seeing small steps forward at the G20 in the lead-up to the G20 summit in Korea. They did hold what was called a civil G20, where they brought representatives from civil society from all of the G20 countries, or most of them anyway, for some kind of a dialogue. I understand it was sort of an artificial dialogue with a lot of people kind of talking past each other, but I think that was an improvement upon the previous summits. I know in the U.S. and Canada, there was no official process, total confusion about whether NGOs could even get press credentials to get into the briefings and so forth. And so that was a little bit of a step forward, but we're certainly hoping that we'll see more progress in France in 2011. In November of 2011, the G20 leaders will convene at Cannes in southern France. In January 2011, the United Kingdom's G20 Sherpa announced that the G20 is operating in management rather than crisis mode. It has established working groups to examine a number of central issues. Mexico and Germany will be co-chairing a group on the world monetary system. You know, in some ways, you can say the G20 becomes a bit of a prisoner of success. The G20 does act as this Christ committee. The results are not uniform across all the members, but certainly we're not descending back to the 1930s with protectionism, massive protectionism, massive sort of loss of trust. But at the same time, I think like the G8 itself, but I think far more magnified, just because there's so many more members of the G20, and of course they come from different regions of the world with very different cultures. You're seeing sort of post-colonial members, you're seeing countries that have different political systems. So it's very easy for the G20 to sort of be thrown off by some big 
issues that really dominate the headlines and both the currency issue, particularly between the United States and China, but I think dragging in all sorts of other countries as well, and the whole question of imbalances or rebalancing. But I guess if there's good news, if you can sort of put quotation marks around good, is that these are not issues that really divide the North and the South. I mean, on all of these issues, different countries have different takes on what is good and bad. So on rebalancing, even though uh, China is sort of opposed to to the United States that are pushing for immediate change in sort of exports and imports, Germany takes a similar line. So again, you know, you see representatives of both sort of the new establishment and the old establishment uh, combining forces. French President Nicolas Sarkozy also restated his commitment to discuss the financial transactions tax at the G20, a method of innovative financing that could mean billions of dollars in additional development aid. I think for the G20 we can see a similar situation where the G20 has particularly its approach to the financial crisis and now its approach to development. The G20 has shown capacity for vigorous leadership. When there is political will, particularly on the hosts and a few other powerful allies of the host, these bodies can actually move issues forward. And if there is general public mobilization, maybe not in the same direction but on the same issues, things can happen. Lastly. Great Britain will be chairing a G20 working group on global governance that will look at the possibilities for establishing a permanent G20 secretariat. This could go a long way to establishing the principles of transparency and accountability called for by civil society. I'm not sure that anything is going to be resolved in the French summit, but it's important that the issues be kept under close watch by civil society and by other groups that care about equity and uh, fairness and poverty reduction in the world as a whole. To learn more about current developments regarding the G20 and about the work of the Halifax Initiative, and to hear other podcasts in this series, visit www.halifaxinitiative.org. The Halifax Initiative wishes to thank the Canadian Auto Workers Union. Without its financial support, these podcasts would not be possible. For Definitely Not the G8, I'm Jesse Russ-Smith. Thank you for listening.